Welcome to episode three of the Radical Narrative. I'm your host, Mylan Tatusis, coming at you from rural Saskatchewan, Indigenous Prairie Territory. Today on the episode, I'm sitting with Mr. Antonio Price. Join us as we talk about land-based education, prairie province racism, dollar store versions of America, and a cool land-based master's program. In complete disclaimer, he is a set. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to sit with me and do this podcast. I asked you a few months ago um, to actually sit down with me, and I think you kind of just were overwhelmed with the request. And you didn't, you were like, I think you literally said, I don't know what I have to offer. <laughs> I still, I'm not, I'm still not sure. I, think. <laughs> I think it, well, in all honesty, I think it will be a curveball for some listeners, and they're going to be like, why is Mylan recording this white guy from Edmonton? You know what I mean? <laughs> Edmonton. No, and, yeah, I totally understand. That's why I'm not sure I, I have something to offer, but I hope so. Yeah, I think you definitely do when we dive into it. Um, but yes, for the listeners who aren't aware or didn't read the introduction or bio, um, Anthony Price is a teacher in Alberta right now. I was his TA for two of his graduate courses in the Department of Educational Foundations land-based master's program at University of Saskatchewan. So we kind of got to know each other doing land-based accesses in northern Manitoba and in Hawaii. So we were actually in those places together. Um, but, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself um, in your own way, and, and we can go from there. All right. Well, yeah, Anthony Price. Um, I currently teach high school in a little town called Thorhild. It's a pretty well-entrenched settler community uh, just northeast of Edmonton. And I grew up in the Yukon, um, so my mom was a teacher, my dad was a teacher, and then uh, my stepmom was also a teacher, and she worked for Finesc in British Columbia. So my first teaching job was actually for Diddy Dot First Nation on Vancouver Island. Um, yeah, I think that's probably, like, we'll have a lot of chance to go a lot deeper, but that's kind of like my background and how I ended up in a program like uh, Dr. Wilson's Land-Based Masters. So yeah, I think that's how I'd like to, to start. Yeah, for sure. And it is a land-based master. So you're more like the outdoorsy type, um, like on your social media, yeah. you're, you're climbing mountains and doing all this cool stuff. So you do position yourself as more like a outdoors type person. So naturally inclined to want to check out a land-based master's program. Yeah, absolutely. When I applied for it, I like, I took my background just as I was growing up and kind of my original thought process was that I was really interested in, um, kind of what my role was within uh, what we call Canada and kind of combine what I saw when I read about the program, like my interest in the outdoors. And yeah, like you say, I'm a rock climber and backcountry skier. And that has kind of framed a lot of how I've come to see the world and kind of where I've chosen to um, kind of dedicate my efforts as well. Uh, taken what I've learned in my land-based practice and applied it in my personal life too. Yeah. Yeah. So already like you're definitely positioned, you, you mentioned Canada, you mentioned um, being a settler and you're mentioning being a rock climber and a back country skier, which I really like in my experience growing up as an indigenous person are, are very like settler things to do. 
like to sort oh, of have <laughs> to have access to these 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 um, sports that you know the average rest kid may not have access to. Um, yeah, so you did take the indigenous um, land based master's program, and then you kind of went through this whole transformation and awareness in those programs. Like, so you're positioning yourself on landscape, obviously, right now with the work that you're doing and and you, what you do on the side and how you identify as an outdoor person. But what was this whole transformation that took place in the class? Because now you're doing something unique. You're doing something unique as an educator and as a person, as a settler male. I think I knew it was coming when we read uh, Eco Heroes Out of Place by Cordwig and Oakley. Mm-hmm. I kind of had an idea when they were when those authors were writing about uh, McCandless and Into the Wild and, uh, and I forget his name, but the guy that was in Grizzly Man and about how they're kind of uh, pursuit of um, that masculine individualism and going out into the wild and how that silenced uh, indigenous knowledge Mm -hmm. in the territories in which they were inhabiting and they paid the ultimate price for that. I kind of then really started to begin what you call that transformation where I was starting to think about like what I do in my pastime and how that is they're not overly inclusive um, things to take part in. And it's kind of put me in this place where I want to be able to create space in these places that have predominantly become colonial themselves. So, I mean, I made this commitment to only travel to um, areas or traditional territories in which I have permission. And it was predominantly because of that, um, like my mind opening to that and just recognizing how, um, how colonial these areas have now become. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in my pedagogy as a teacher now too, it's, I have a much more critical lens of, I mean, all of the outcomes that I have to teach for any of my social studies courses. And um, I think like Dr. Wilson, I overheard conversation when we were in Hawaii, just how we weren't preparing um, our next generation for the world that was coming. And that's really resonated with me now that I've seen just how our, how I've like kind of pulled myself out of the out of the fishbowl and then looked back in and just realized what she's talking about and in our conversations and that's really kind of framed my um, my way of thinking now. Yeah, totally. So yeah, you're coming at it from this perspective of having access to land and having that experience of you know being having the privilege to be out in those spaces, travel to that, learn some techniques and skills, and having to take this program, starting to realize there's an indigenous presence. There's indigenous history and there's a very real colonial history, right? So now how do you like position yourself as a settler in relationship to the landscapes you're working in? How do I position myself as a settler? (laughs) Oh man. It's, uh, my work is with like settler kids. That's how I see myself that, um, if reconciliation is to be a thing, it's, like indigenous people have been doing the heavy lifting for far too long. And it's with the families that are settlers and their children in my classroom that need to understand what it means to be treaty people and need to understand that we all inhabit indigenous land. Mm -hmm. And I think like 
if you look just kind of how what the land is telling us right now, I mean, Edmonton is smoky, and I can't even tell you where the nearest fire is. And, like, things are going on, and the only paradigm that I've seen that addresses kind of a relationship that is sustainable is an Indigenous paradigm. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way around that for me now, so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. An Indigenous paradigm, Indigenous presence. And we unpacked a lot of that in, in our graduate courses um, with Alex Wilson's program. Um, but you said something interesting. You said something, and I really like how you go about this, is that you're actually doing the work with settler kids, and you're actually doing the work in, in sort of your own silo, so to speak, of doing the legwork to sort of raise awarenesses and promote this paradigm that isn't necessarily promoted in formal, normal Western settler education and upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of figured out that that's, I think that's where my work is. It, I've experienced what it's like to live and work on reserve. And it's not as though I didn't really enjoy that experience. I think I'm a valuable educator in a community that I like, I share my upbringing with, but because I have this breadth of experience and this, I would say a vastly different worldview, it's my opportunity to kind of, to share that and, try to lead that sort of change in that community. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of really great things going on in indigenous communities all over the world. And we need the same sort of, same sort of like awakening and work to be done in settler communities. Yeah. Like to- straight up. Yeah, for sure. And I, that's unique because it's unique to me. And I like hearing that. And I know we've had conversations and sort of just touch base on this. And I know what you're doing over there because we always talk and, and I know about your project and thing like, things like that. But it's unique to me because you're not positioning yourself in a way where you're taking up space in indigenous communities and in indigenous discussions. You're taking the work and the awarenesses you've had and applying it to your demographic of people you have access to. And I, and I think that's important for a lot of settlers to... Um, become more aware of because sometimes they kind of show up to spaces that are a bit more contentious with their presence where they're more so taking space. And I think that's something I really wanted to highlight with the work you're doing is you're literally doing the legwork with young children in your program, in your schooling, uh, where you're at. It's slow. I think I fundamentally took from our program like how important relationships are. And so any of the progress that I see, like I've had, I've taught a couple kids from the same family and over the course of like four or five years from starting to work with them to when I share that like I have a good enough relationship with one of them that's graduated that he wanted to go scrambling near Cadman and I'm like okay I'm gonna ask for permission to do so and mm-hmm. he actually under like was like that's awesome yeah. I had never thought of doing that and that's I mean it takes a long time to get that sort of relationship and understanding but I mean when it does happen that's I think that's kind of the point. Yeah, that's a that's a success story. Like that's that's something very refreshing for me to hear, because for me growing up, like non-native, in particular, like non-native males, even now, there there's more so like a positioning and a posturing where I sometimes mostly um, perceive it as a threat, so to speak, or I'm just mindful that yeah. sometimes there's not a paradigm or they're not aware of some of the conversations or some of the context of who I am as an indigenous male. So it's really unique that we have this friendship and this partnership where we're talking about these things and I get to see the work you're doing, um, in particular with young males. That's, that's pretty unique. And I think that's pretty cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Like it's, it's pretty unbelievable like, in our conversations and what I pay attention to you posting on 
your social media. Mm-hmm. And when I, like, I see it, like I'm in that sort of, uh, community where that culture, the, that settler farming kind of, especially in our males is very prevalent and, Oh, I find it so training too. Now that I'm really conscious of it, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. And it's everywhere. It's like present in, in like almost literally every conversation you have is sort of like this toxic masculinity where you're constantly observing men posture and position themselves. And I think we're, yeah, we're actually like, I think we're in like this social and political climate where that's just becoming more excessive. It's becoming more public now. Oh, it's not getting any easier in this province, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's an industry province, right? So a lot of our listeners, um, well, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily from the prairie. In your experience, coming at it from Yukon to the prairie provinces, so like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, predominantly Alberta, what's your dynamic of you observing this landscape socially and politically? Like, how what, what, what are you seeing? I haven't quite figured out where this has come from but I've always thought of at least my experience in Alberta that there's this general crab in the bucket syndrome where and I mean we're seeing it right now with who our our electorate has elected and their general attitude towards um, people who care that aren't in industry that if things aren't going well for people in the oil industry that let's just pull everybody else down. And that is something that I think I've noticed kind of across the board. Um, well, I mean, like, that's not entirely fair because I know, like, there's amazing people that I have met in numerous communities in which I've lived and worked here. Mm-hmm. But that just, it, there just, it seems to be this current that I find here where, I mean, growing up in the Yukon, I always remember this. A sense of community, a sense of contact between, like, I always knew I had Indigenous friends and I was kind of just conscious of, like, people's humanity. And I, right now, maybe it's just kind of the climate that we're in. Mm -hmm. I find that that's being lost. And I don't know necessarily if that's just, like, an Alberta and, or if that's just something that's happening yeah. all over the place. But um, that's probably the kind of like the best thing that I can describe or the most obvious thing I can describe. I think the crab in the bucket it just seems to speak to some of the culture that I, I, I see it in my kids in my classroom too. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a little bit of like a, a resentment and an anger that I've never quite understood coming mm-hmm. from a place where I didn't, I mean, I grew up, I was really lucky. I grew up in a family where, I mean, my mom and my dad split, but I never felt unloved. And I I was always surrounded by people that were working towards social justice and building community. My my family were always community builders. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there's something about the prairies and some of the places that I've worked where I feel like there's something like missing in that respect. And I know that's a pretty big generalization, but I feel it pretty consciously right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There definitely is like this, this lack of humanity. Um, There's like a deep seated hate. And sometimes you talk to people and they don't even know where that hate comes from. It's just an assumed perception they have of indigenous people, assumed perception of they have of, of people who want to do community work in general. 
Um, but you said something interesting. You said crabs in a bucket. So um, elaborate on that. Do you mean like crabs in a bucket where there's just like toxicity bringing other people down constantly or there's like a hate? Yeah, it's like a, a theory that if you have crabs in a bucket, when one tries to run out, the other ones will grab it down. Yeah. And um, that's just kind of stuck with me from the way that some of my kids and families talk about just, well, I mean, like teachers are the best example right now. I'm like, mm-hmm. I would never have cheered when families were losing their jobs on the patch when things were down. Like, mm-hmm. I know that that means that people are hurting. But the culture in this province all of a sudden is just that we've been, our government has been (laughs) kind of enabling this idea that we're the enemy too. And that um, I've never really quite understood that. I don't know where that comes from growing up somewhere outside of this province. I, I don't understand why that is a reaction to just tough times that we'll look at other places to kind of really lash out at them when we all kind of need to be working together <laughs> just yeah. simply put yeah yeah that's interesting because the crabs in a bucket analogy like a lot of people in the indigenous world our indigenous sphere say that a lot too about our communities so it's cool to hear you say that about like settler communities where but it was done it's done in a way where like it's almost like they don't want people to create a better world is how you're explaining it to me. Or like, they don't want people to like liberate themselves and, and become more aware of things. It's like, no, stay here and stay stuck in this, this toxicity or this, this lack of humanity, as you put it. And I honestly think that's like, I think that's just come from our systems, like settler systems. There's something. And what are my experience at like Mao farms in Hawaii and, um, just the way that Kamalo Eno like was like speaking, I began to like kind of recognize. I think at least this is my my perception of it that mm-hmm. my system is the one that has brought that idea that we like cut each other down. So that when he described like he they're unlearning poverty, mm-hmm. that the crabs in a bucket is probably the best description of what it means to actually have learned poverty. That's really like to me what that is. It's it's a it itself is a perspective or a worldview and that's what we have to unlearn. And our system is basically kind of creating that in the, as our system becomes more unequal and more and more of us are kind of squished by it, that that's what's going to happen to us. Like it's hard. I feel like this kind of a little bit downtrodden this year. I love teaching. I don't think I've found when people say that it's kind of a calling, like I I know exactly what that means. And I love teaching. I love those interactions with students. And I mean, this is one of my first years where I kind of feel like that's being, being crushed a little bit just by like the events, the ongoing events here. So, Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you brought up Ma'o Farms. I'll probably put a link out to that in the show notes because in Hawaii, we got to see a lot of land-based projects out there together. We got to go out there and see a lot of the land-based work that Indigenous peoples are doing in different capacities. So we definitely, I mean, I always benefit from doing those land-based accesses too. Um, But yeah, that crabs in a bucket thing, that's an interesting analogy. I mean, to hear you position it that way outside the way I'm used to hearing it, it's really um, interesting to me. Um, you also talked about, you just mentioned something about how it's like this paradigm that of like, lack of a better word, like Western culture, where it's, it's competitive, 
there's um, haves and haves nots type systems and things like that. Um, and now ultimately that's like class, right? There's all, there's like class and there's, there's certain politics and economics in play, um, that are really predatory, that are really toxic. Um, yeah. Can you speak to that a bit? Like just give them some dynamic or give some conversation about what's, um, how you're perceiving the world in that way. Like what, what are the toxicities that you're talking about here? I mean, like look at like how even somebody, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like the way that she is approached on on the steps of Congress, and all she's really asking for is like a common humanity among women, among minorities within the United States, and that I, I forget which uh, male politician it was. It, mm-hmm. I mean, he should be forgettable. Um, just calling her a, a bitch. That is, it's brutal and it's so indicative of that, yeah. of that culture. Like just by questioning it, you now really see how, how sharp the system really is, yeah. how it's, um, it's entrenched this, um, masculinity that it's not even really based on merit that these systems are kind of perpetuating like the same people coming to the same positions. And then as soon as you question it, well, then all of a sudden you're this enemy. And that is a, a pretty like striking failure of our system. And yeah. I mean, Canada, we'd be, it would be pretty naive to think that Canada is not that far behind that, or that it's not possible for that sort of system to exist here. And like the, how far it's kind of moved along in the States, because I mean, if you're indigenous, I know that you've experienced that sharp end and for Mm -hmm. predominantly for white males, like you don't see it because everything just seems to glide along so seamlessly, but that's really what, what is happening. And it's like just below the surface. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too how, how you're giving context, like the American context, right? It's almost like this theme in the world where everyone loves pointing fingers at the U S Canadians love pointing fingers at the U S saying stuff's crazy there. Right. But for me, like indigenous as an indigenous person, a transboundary indigenous person, you know, whose traditional territory is both in the U S and Canada, Canada and the U S are sort of like different branches of the same tree. Right. So it's like to have these general conversations we're having about land and politics and settler colonialism and things like that we're viewing those things in, in very similar ways. Like it's not just like Canada or the U S right now. And I think you touched on that. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely like my take is I pay attention to the U S politics, but fully aware that, yeah, that I always say in Saskatchewan, the racism is just like an inch below the surface. Um, you just need to wipe it away and, and it'll raise its ugly head and the toxicity is there. No, I a hundred percent agree. And I think that's, maybe that's something that's indicative of Alberta as well. I mean, it's always been called like the Texas of Canada, but it's, that's maybe why we're calling it that because that is so, it's so similar here, so similar with our leadership. And the really dangerous thing that I've noticed is just that because we have leadership that speaks the way that it does about indigenous communities, about women and I mean, about public service, that it's empowered a lot of people that that hold really like pejorative beliefs and have kind of given them this voice that you can't really put that back in a bag. That's what I'm 
kind of a, a little bit afraid of is that that can't go back in now. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that we're seeing certain paradigms emerge that are really problematic and you can't just like turn the other cheek, so to speak, to these things that are out there and they need to be confronted. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also like, it's almost like a comedy, like looking at Jason Kenney in Alberta, it's almost like a comedy to me because it's it's almost like knockoff America, right? It's like the dollar store version of like what's going on in the US. Like they're trying to replicate so many economic and political jargon. And, and the funny part is it's working socially. Like it's working socially where you're actually like, well, when I go to Alberta, I'm actually seeing Confederate flags, you know, out in the rural landscapes. And it's so like, it's so weird. <laughs> Oh, it doesn't make any sense either. I've had kids come up and say, like, oh, it's Confederate flag. It's it's awesome and, like, should be able to fly. Did you read that thing? And I'm like, have, it's not racist. I'm like, have you read the Cornerstone speech? Well, yeah. no. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny in, in uh, rural Saskatchewan in general, like, the, a lot of the, the settler farmers, like, you know, second, third generation farmers or early 1900 farmers were here way later like way later than the civil war and now there's this, like their their heritage and lineage isn't even tied to that so obviously it's like it's like they're they're tying into the 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 paradigm of what that flag is representing you know what i mean which is racism which is white supremacy which is power and dominance it's really weird dynamic it is it is truly it's really defied logic and I can't quite figure out how that happened. It must be that they just put it on a nice, like a, on a bright orange Dodge Charger, and then all of a sudden, like, I mean, <laughs> if you want to commit blasphemy out in my community, like, drive a little pickup truck that doesn't roll coal, and you're <laughs> like a heretic. Yeah, but I think it happened because cause of the dollar store version of American, you know, American stuff like that's trying to take that Alberta's trying to launch and take off. But I mean, a lot of the oil industry and sectors is tied to the U.S. I know they like Calgary, yeah, they say yeah. is like, you know, is basically going to like, it's almost as if you're in the U.S. when you're in certain parts of Calgary. What I don't understand either is the, this connection to like that oil has almost, I've seen people with license plates, not license plates, bumper stickers now. They're like, I love Alberta carbon or CO2. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how this industry got so tightly attached to their identity here. Maybe that's something just coming from another part of the country that I don't, I've never understood how that has become so fundamentally attached to an Albertan's identity and that there, there's this weird belief in some, like I live in probably pretty blue collar. Like they're the guys that are like working out on the patch, doing like the rig hands and stuff. Mm-hmm. That they have this connection to the CEOs of these companies in Calgary, and there's like almost nothing in common between the two, and yet they're more attached to like the survival of those individuals at their standard of living than they are to their own communities in a weird way like i've never quite understood that disconnect either yeah i mean the the reality with like rural saskatchewan and 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 i would assume certain parts of alberta is that a lot of the poor people work those industries and they work those industries and they break their backs in those industries like literally like you know there's this um assumption in indigenous communities that if you want to be productive get a job but they're not talking about how those jobs are labor jobs where you're literally breaking your body 
And I see that in the oil and gas sector. I see that in the industry where, you know, guys are coming back and working ridiculous hours and it's just not a healthy way to live your life, but they're defending it tooth and nail. <laughs> and it's like, like, yeah. <laughs> I have a friend that uh, said, he's like, I hear all about this, this work ethic, but how come we don't talk about any other ethic? It's always work ethic. Yeah. But I mean, like, there's tons of different ethics that we can and should live by. Mm-hmm. But the one that just seems so prevalent is work ethic. Come hell or high water, it's just you put your head down and you work and you don't think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time for us to start thinking. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, the family systems are suffering, right? You work with young kids and, yeah. and you know, if that work ethic is how the family operates, then it's not a very safe environment because it is sort of producing this, this toxicity of, of not taking care of your own emotional mental needs and not yeah. taking care of your body because you're literally going to work till you're broken. And for some weird reason, that's that is the norm in Western Prairie province culture among settlers and about uh, and amongst the certain aspects of indigenous communities is that you work your body until it breaks. And it's, it's a very toxic belief that I think drives the politics and the economics in these provinces. But yeah, they're poor people. There's like literally poor people out here who are defending, you know, certain economies that aren't for them at all. No, not working in their interest anymore. Yeah. And that's, I think what's changed so much. There was like this, it can even be a myth for, from kind of its, its heyday, but as our system has kind of grown more and more unequal, it's almost un, undefendable how little in our interest these, this system truly is, unless you're in that, well, give it the benefit of the doubt, but like the top 5%, like, mm-hmm. and I mean, even that, that's so short-sighted as well, that at some point we're going to have a reckoning with, I always think about the like long after the last river has been poisoned and the last fish has been caught we'll realize we can't eat money and i think that (laughs) that's just always stuck with me yeah so did you see that on like some motivational poster uh it was yeah Yeah. it was was something in katoskino school in enoch i saw that on a poster yeah we're at that point now we're observing literally like the forest fires right now going on in california and oregon and yeah, it's getting it's getting to that point where you know crazy things are going to happen. Well, I mean that's the thing with COVID that it's like I told I even told my kids last year as I was starting my grade ten course that this virus is going to be an epistemological problem, and they're like, "What does epistemology mean?" I'm like, "Okay, well, how do you know things are true? Like, we know these these things to be true. That's just what our worldview is, and this is how we know them to be true. And something like a virus is going to just completely blow up how we think things should be. Yeah. And climate change is going to be the exact same problem. Yeah. And I mean, if we're not, if you're still denying it, like it's there's no helping you yeah. <laughs> that. Um, but I mean, so many, so many people think in terms of like, well, when this is over, but I mean, the kind of the way that I see it is that it's going to be just this chain of different like crises that are going to get kind of more and more frequent. There has to be some sort of really systemic change and we're going to have to reckon with that really soon because, it's not going to get any better. They're just, just going to keep coming at us until we actually like do something concrete and big. 
our first interview that Alex got us to do with Victor Oskenakisis in Opaskwiak. Mm -hmm. And he said that part of what he shared with uh, Des, Catherine, and I was that, that our communities, like settler communities, would turn to Indigenous communities for answers to, to things like this. That's always stuck with me, too, that through this whole program, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into, but I kind of picked up on this, that there are important answers that are found in your communities and your ways of knowing that are answers to these problems that we're facing. We're not going yeah. to, if we're just going to be talking about how to make a profit off the next best technology, I mean, we're just going to still face massive problems and... I only see money going to like fewer and fewer hands, but yeah. the consequences are going to be felt by the majority of people all around the world. And they yeah. look a little grim here. <laughs> <laughs> they are. I mean, they are. Like in my field, political ecology and indigenous studies, part of my, my research right now is looking at the political ecology of the prairie. But you hit the nail on the head where you said like, you know, a lot of these um, disasters and these hazards and these changes, they're compounded, which means they're happening more frequently back to back to back, right? So um, you were talking about COVID being an epistemological issue right now. It totally is. And then on top of that, now we have forest fires. On top of that, we have economic crisis. On top of that, there's going to be something else. So it's like we're just getting herded into these these very high-stress situations where we're going to have to find some solutions to. Yeah, so you're thinking in terms of, like, indigenous epistemology helping uh, the Western world. How how do you see that happening? Like, what are your thoughts on that right now from where you're at in, in, your, in your position as an educator? Well, we have to have a better re relationship with land, that it needs to be more respectful I mean, I don't, I don't know if kids will think in terms of all aspects of creation, mm -hmm. but their relationship and their understanding of what something means to be sacred mm -hmm. can be um, much more developed. Our system has really kind of destroyed that understanding. And if you want to be able to protect these systems that we are entirely dependent on, that relationship has to be nurtured. And I mean, like settlers have huge footprints, ecological footprints. So yeah. it's got to be in, in those communities where the most change can happen. I mean, indigenous communities are doing the work in my eyes and like settler communities, especially in the prairies right now are, are not, which is also kind of strange to me because I think farmers kind of are built, like come from this worldview where they, they have this relationship to land that is more, I mean, imperfect, but it's, it's more connected to the land than I think urban populations can than are, mm -hmm. and but it's much more extractive. But yeah. at least there's this kind of like base or starting point where like you watch the land, you watch your crops, you kind of pay attention to what's yeah. happening in the weather and the climate, the seasons, and mm -hmm. I mean that's a place that I can build on. Yeah, there's totally that that dynamic on the prairie where farmers. You, you would assume that, and I know some of them are, like I've had personal conversations with some that are that are pretty aware, pretty respectful, and they observe landscape in a unique way. But I, there's this one farmer that I, I had a conversation with out in rural Saskatchewan who was from Europe, and he was a farmer in Europe, and he married a woman over here in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba. And one of the things he pointed out to me that was really unique was he said farming for him and his family was like a way of life and yeah. an identity. And that's how it's always been. Like it, it's an identity and a way of life. It's almost like a culture. Like he was explaining it like a culture. But when he, when he came to America and 
it, it was almost like he viewed it as being cultureless, where it was more so economic, um, more so very like data based, um, like extraction. Like he was highlighting the extraction industry, and and I always found that interesting. Is like this disconnect from from being like a farmer on on a cosmological level in relationship to land, and then all, all of a sudden switching to being a farmer in an economic sense where you're it's an occupation more so than an identity there is still some of that here now that i now that you mentioned that like i've we've even had that discussion in our office because like a lot of the people that work in the school like in the administration part of our building are also mm-hmm. farmers too and they were trying to explain to my roommate who's a city guy just what it meant to like for farming to be a way of life mm-hmm. and he didn't quite understand it so i mean that it exists a little bit mm-hmm. in uh, some of the spaces that I occupy, but I can see what your conversation describes that I, I lived in France for a short while oh, and yeah. there is, I don't know, honestly, I can't even really explain it, but there is something long seated and cultural about that particular, like that practice. And mm-hmm. it's definitely we're we're kind of at the, the more, whatever you would call it, capitalist or how the, how the industry has kind of taken over the, yeah. the yeah. whole mechanism of farming. Yeah, it's cool how you brought up Europe because Europe, I've been to Europe and traveled there a few times and it's always interesting how like when you get into rural Europe, like Italy and France, there's like this culture with a land-based practice, but it's tied to food. It's tied to like cuisine. Yeah, it's tied it is. to like regional dialect. It's even tied to certain crafts and trades. Like we were in northern italy one time and 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 there was a furniture maker who just he was a furniture maker like that was his whole whole identity and it was so weird to see somebody have an occupation in trade i was as making furniture like handmade furniture and then him you know talking through translation explaining the trees where the trees come from and things like that and i was like holy shit this is an amazing conversation <laughs> but then you come to rural saskatchewan and it's like what's what's the cuisine here you know like what's the long long seated identity amongst these people and and you definitely hit like a depth to it like it's not that deep with some settler cultures and and i've always wondered that like it's it's real like even today it's really hard to find homemade pie just just to be on a surface level <laughs> conversation yeah, yeah right and it's really hard to find like like certain aspects of of how things were because everything's just been modernized and everything's been like surface level where it's just it's almost like people are just going through the motion of what it is to do your occupation out here and um yeah contrasting that with europe europeans it's like there's major differences with with what's going on in europe and and settler culture in canada and I remember joking with some Italians and saying uh, they were referring to them as like as the lost children that took off to America <laughs> and you, they don't want them back and we don't want them. So it's like they're just like these these um, this weird culture subset of a culture. So they don't identify with them. And yeah, it was just a really interesting conversation to see and unpack that dynamic of culture tied to landscape in Europe versus here. I wish I had actually taken our program before I went to I went to Austria for a, a summer school. I just mm-hmm. signed up because the government was providing a grant for anybody that was willing to go study the Americas, but in Austria. And like looking back, it was the most surreal experience to go to Europe and then study like North America and South America, like like a European yeah. does. Like kind of looks at 
where I'm from. <laughs> and I, I wasn't like academically prepared for it. I just was interested in kind of seeing how it worked. And now knowing what I know, I would have had much better questions and would have been much better engaged in it. But it was just yeah. so weird. I got asked like questions about like what Canadian music was like and like where, what's it rooted <laughs> in. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, let's unpack that a bit. Who who are you like historically versus who are you today? So you position yourself as like a Canadian settler from the Yukon, but who 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 are you historically? Like, if do your lineage? So like my genealogy, like yeah. Uh, okay, well, um, it turns out that my family my family name so Price is Welsh, and I mm. have been lucky enough to with my dad before he passed away wrote as much as he could about our about his, at least his life story and what he knew of his like his family's past and but yeah my family is predominantly british so my dad's side were were english and welsh and on my mom's side were scottish mm-hmm. and my dad's side is predominantly a military family mm-hmm. and i mean <laughs> Quite a ways back, we found my dad had a, oh my God, what is it called? Um, my dad has a medal, a Brit- Order of the British Empire for his great uncle in opening up the Persian oil fields. So there is some reckoning there in my family line. Oh, based wow. on, a settler has yeah. colonial history. Wow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so the four brothers are my so my dad's dad and his three brothers were all British, either Army, Navy, or Air Force. And yeah, so really deep-seated kind of that military family history. And um, my mom's side, I mean, her parents served in the war, um, but I don't think that was like part of their like... like their sense of pride that was just what they had to do and much more blue collar upbringing actually quite poor and Mm -hmm. uh, so there was four of those siblings that grew up in Vancouver and um, my mom's always been a very strong social justice advocate and I mean she knew of like her and Alex are our friends already from her work and so i mean like the first time i even i even talked to alex yeah my mom was looking to try to get uh sheila mclean to come and to do a a workshop with the manitoba teachers federation mm-hmm. but then sheila declined and passed on along alex and so my mom has been um a, a pretty huge influence in how i've come to see the world and in my profession and yeah i guess personal life now too and then my dad no less too he was in um i mean in his own way like we grew up uh, spending our summers in on Seashelt Band territory in uh, Narrows Inlet on the Sunshine Coast, and the property that they owned was actually the island that's right in front of it was Seashelt Band um, was a sacred burial ground, mm-hmm. and so that was kind of the first, or my my dad even taught it what it mean what it, sacred meant, and yeah. so we used to spend our summers there and. We're really quite lucky. It was where I probably developed my first like real relationship with with land mm-hmm. in a way that was kind of. I've always, I haven't always thought in terms like this, but it was definitely spiritual. 
Yeah, so there's like a lot there for you, like just in terms of, you know, further back you go, there's obviously like a colonial military history and then coming at it to like where we're at now, having access to landscape, having a mother who, who, who did know Alex Wilson, obviously early on in her career and, um, having a father and having access to certain aspects of, of respecting land already early on. I think that's pretty unique because, and it's fascinating to me, like part of the reason why I wanted you on this podcast was because we never really get into what makes a settler click, so to speak, or what's behind a settler in terms of their identity and their upbringing. So yeah, you're kind of exposing that to me and ideally, hopefully to some of our listeners. Um, yeah. So what goes on? You're making us more human. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our joke, just to let the listeners in on a ongoing joke we had was I think in, in Opasquayak, when we're up there in that grad course, Anthony was talking about like his military history and, and him being, you know, coming out from the English shot, like the England side of things. And I was all like, yeah, maybe 250 years ago, we wouldn't have been friends. And he always brings that up. You always bring that up. Like every conversation you're like, yeah, well, 250 years ago, we wouldn't be friends, <laughs> but now we are, now we are, yeah. now, now we're having a podcast and you're, you're, you're unpacking a lot of this stuff for yourself here. And I get to watch. <laughs> I bet it's interesting to watch. <laughs> so does it feel like a duck above the surface? Everything's like calm, but underneath I'm like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> Just trying to stay afloat and navigate this stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's like the reality with grad school in general um, is like people, you know, get unsettled like socially and politically. But with like the land-based masters, Dr. Alex Wilson's program, who I want to get on the podcast for settlers and, and for I think any program that dives into decolonization on some level, it's really unsettling where they have to go through this psychological, mental and even an emotional transformation on the fly. And it's not pleasant. It's not easy. Um but yeah, seeing you go through that on the fly in Hawaii too was was pretty unique because you had these conversations. You've you've exposed some of the these conversations pretty early on in grad school. So yeah, it's definitely like you are a calm, cool deck on top of the water. But then I definitely get the vibe that sometimes you're like just trying to keep your head above water too. <laughs> well, it's not an easy program either. Like you do have a lot of work to do, like academic work on top yeah. of what you call hard work. Mm-hmm. As you're, you are experiencing this transformation, you're still expected to be able to articulate it yeah. in response to big questions. And so, yeah, yeah it's a whole true. lot packed into a little time. Yeah, big emotional transformation, you know, big unsettling stuff. And then have to still read, still write <laughs> on top of that. Regular grad school programs are pretty easy compared to these land-based accesses because we pack a lot in to like two weeks yeah yeah we do <laughs> yeah yeah and my job was to keep you guys on task facilitate some discussions but make sure everyone gets through it and we don't lose anybody <laughs> i think that's pretty successful <laughs> yeah oh, my, i would if i can share like my favorite part of the whole experience was when we were traveling from oahu to the big island and we we're already late for the flights and we're running around trying to find tickets to the next flight because we're we're going to miss this one. I look over and you're already in the line to get through security to catch the flight we were supposed to be on. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Why are we running around and he's already going? But after he explained it, that Alex is just like, just get on that flight, get the rental cars. We're good. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I totally understand. That's what I, <laughs> I was under direct orders to get there first so that if everything falls apart, which it kind of did, at least somebody's over there to like try and get things back together again. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, totally. That's 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 you know that's sort of like the jive of the program is it's 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 like an orchestrated chaos. <laughs> it's an orchestrated chaos, and we all get through it together. And yeah, it's it's pretty transformational. But yeah, I mean, it it's, it it was a fun job. I liked it. I definitely would do it again. I definitely would do it again. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. So yeah, for our listeners, there's a land-based PH, uh, land-based master's program at the University of Saskatchewan, Dr. Alex Wilson, Wilson's program in Ed Foundations. If you're interested, if it sounds interesting to you, you should check it out on uh, USAS website. I'll probably post a link in the show notes for sure. Yeah. And then, yeah, we kind of have some pretty cool bonding moments. I mean, uh, I think I got to Hawaii pretty early to help organize and set things up. And I think you got there pretty early too. And, um, it did, yeah. yeah. I wanted to do the like the typical seller thing and just see Hawaii, go to Pearl Harbor, <laughs> and that was all pretty boring, to be completely honest. In and hindsight, I've, like, yeah, <laughs> I've really noticed that like it doesn't really matter what you're doing; you got to be doing it with friends. Like, <laughs> community is what makes things interesting. You like so many people just wander around looking at old things. Like, yeah, I guess I really wanted to see the USS Missouri because I used to love. Uh, under siege with Steven Seagal and my dad was in the Navy. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to go see this thing. And here I am walking around by myself in Pearl Harbor with a bunch of other white people. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not that interesting. <laughs> Dude, I remember, I remember being in Hawaii and hearing that you were coming and that was something you wanted to do. And I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's something he would want to do. <laughs> Makes sense. And then, um, yeah, for me, like when I first went to Hawaii, I was actually um, doing a, a shared class with the University of Victoria Indigenous Governance and University of UH Manoa Indigenous Politics. And we got welcomed by my classmates over there. And, and you know, we got my friend Katie Kamela Mela took me to the north side of the island to meet her family and her uncle. And we all ate. It was really awesome. It was amazing. And I never really experienced Waikiki and I never really experienced Honolulu in that way. I never been to Pearl Harbor, not even yet. Like not, I haven't been there yet. Um, but then when I was asked to be the TA, I had the student, Anthony Price, who wants to go check out Waikiki. And I'm sitting there like in this position of like, okay, there's this guy who wants to check out Waikiki. I've never been there. And uh, he's just new to the game. He's on his path of becoming woke. So how do I support this guy without like shutting him down? (laughs) So anyways, it boiled down to us actually taking a walk down Waikiki, which is weird. It's almost like you're walking down like Vegas, like the Vegas Strip. It's busy. It's borderline romantic. Well, there's a few of us, so it wasn't just me and you. <laughs> but the romance did come later when you said you wanted to go see the fireworks. <laughs> and I was all like, oh, yeah, man. man, this guy wants to see the fireworks. And I was just like in this place of like trying to be a supportive TA and mentor at that point. So I was all like, well, let's go see the damn fireworks. So we're like driving around trying to find a place to park. And yeah, we actually brought in 2019 together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we saw basically was that would that be the last or the first of the year or lot like of that year where we like because of the way the where you are on the globe is that the last place you'll see the sunset or the first place you'll see the sunset oh man that's a tough question to ask me on the fly on my podcast i know right? i'm supposed to ask the tough <laughs> questions <laughs> anyway it was it was surprisingly good considering how colonial it was yeah it was it was definitely like a different (laughs) culture clash and i know you i and i was thinking this guy's gonna be like at the end of the end of the the whole course he's gonna be like oh man we went to waikiki type thing (laughs) 
<laughs> after everything no, we experienced. <laughs> but it was funny too because you got the discount Airbnb. It was funny because I was on a budget, you were on a budget, and I just stayed on campus because I was I me being there before knew that was the most affordable, safest place. But you actually went the risky route and got I the, did, the yeah. cheapest Airbnb you could get. It was basically as close as you get to Waikiki for like under fifty bucks a night. <laughs> yeah, and you got what you paid for. <laughs> yeah, a whole I got cockroaches for like my whole stay on Waikiki or on uh, Oahu. So even when we went to um, well, when we started the course, and Alex had us at that uh, kind of it was actually more of like more or less a resort. But I thought I had this awesome penthouse like big bedroom suite thing because I was the only one that wasn't paired up with anybody else. Yeah. And oh my God, there was cockroaches everywhere in that room. It was crazy. <laughs> we picked you up that next morning and we're, and we were looking for you. And he's like, you sent us the address and me, Daryl and a few other guys were like, this is the address. He's in Waikiki. It's probably like some bougie, nice place. And we pull up and it's like this weird ass house that's in the middle of like an alley basically. And you come walking out. It was a rental place too. It was a hostel or Airbnb and scooters. Right. <laughs> a bunch of scooters in like the parking lot. It was, it was a, yeah, it was pretty weird. All the batteries were in the kitchen. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, you were telling us about it. Yeah, and then we actually had to share some meals. I remember we had to survive on some spam masubi from like Seven Eleven or somewhere, and then yeah, yeah. After the program, we actually shared, shared some locomoco, so that was good. Yep, yeah, it was delicious. Yeah, I can't really explain to you what that is, but it's good. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> people could Google it. People would Google it, but yeah. Yeah, cool, bro. Well, well, thanks for sitting down with me on this podcast. Thanks for, you know, highlighting some of the stuff that you're going through. And I think it's really important for us to see what you're going through because for me, it's almost like an expose um, of, of, you know, um, the transformation you're, that's taking place for you and has been taking place for quite some time. What's your advice to, like, other educators that are settler out there? Like, what's your advice to the settler world in general? Holy moly. Be open to hard work that if you point yourself in the right direction, that you're going to find um, kind of aspects in your heart that are difficult to deal with. And you know you're going in the right direction when you kind of sit down and kind of embrace that, that you're going to have, um, have to work through that feeling that you should feel guilty for, assumptions that you may have had but the reality is that you're in a place where you will know better and can move forward that sounds pretty formal but that's kind of like yeah. uh what i would say that yeah you'll you'll find some assumptions buried pretty deep and those are the ones that need to be questioned yeah and unpack that whole the whole baggage there yeah yeah cool Awesome. Yeah, that's why I wanted you on the podcast was to sort of get that message out there to people because, yeah, like I said early on, is there's a sort of tendency for, like, white people and settlers just to show up and take a lot of space. And I always say in my lectures and my talk as an educator that, you know, you need to have these conversations at your family's dinner table. You need to have these conversations in your family system and your community. And you're doing that work in the space you're working in, and it's really interesting to see. Thank you. Yeah, man. Any shout-outs, any closing remarks you want to give? Uh, yeah, definitely to you. Um, I think my... I mean, you were my TA for my first half, like both my first two field courses, and you made that experience um, 
kind of as enriching as it was. Um, like I think our relationship has kind of become what it is because of those experiences. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, definitely to Alex Wilson. Um, I, I don't know how she does it. And, but in the way that she goes about, uh, doing the work that she does, I am inspired to my whole cohort too. They made, um, a pretty indelible impression upon me. Like each of them are doing great things across. I mean, like, Kaimi and Kavai in Hawaii and Daryl and Pa in uh, Pueblo and um, everybody across Canada. Like, they're all doing amazing things. And I, like, I love the relationships that we all have now. And uh, to start professors as part of our program, Dr. McKenzie and uh, Dr. Crawford, our Tanis, and any of our profs that we had. Oh, and Dr. Manu Meyer and uh, Hawaii. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of thank yous, a lot of gratitude to go out. So uh, I have a table full of cards that I'm trying to send out to people that were uh, influential in me getting through my program. And yours is here too with your gift. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to drive over then. We we're going to actually pod together, and, and but it just didn't work out with COVID yeah. and scheduling. But this is the next best thing. Yeah, cool, bro. Well, I'm going to link up um, a lot of the stuff to the show notes we talked about, um, Motto Farms and the program itself. Um, This pod really started to highlight um, the Land-Based Masters program, which is pretty cool. And I definitely want to get Dr. Alex Wilson on here so we could unpack some of the stuff that she's doing because she's doing a lot of amazing work and has really opened a lot of doors for me and gave me a strong foundation to, to also do similar work. So, yeah. Perfect. Cool, bro. Well, thanks for everything. I wish you the best and we'll be in touch. And yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. No problem. Take care. All right. You too. Bye.